welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? We are currently, right now, recording the 50th numbered episode of Those Happy Places. The 50th episode. That's incredible. It's... So many episodes. <laughs> it's so many episodes. I can't believe that we've been able to do it for this long. Um, I'm I'm so happy and proud, and and I'm proud of you, and I'm proud of us. This has been so much fun. Yeah, I mean, like you know, this isn't the fiftieth time that you and I have sat down to record those happy places. There's Birds of Paradise, which was not numbered. Uh, there are the minisodes. There's the bonus content on the Patreon. Like, there's a lot of other stuff in the those happy places universe but when we number an episode it's because we feel that it's kind of in sequence in conversation with the other episodes and this is the 50th one of that uh and that's super cool to even consider as a concept yeah definitely uh yeah and and conversation is such a key word to use there um it's part of our discourse and the way that we like to discuss things it's part of what the community that we've built around this podcast is is all about conversation and we'll get into that a little bit more um but it leads us to uh this episode and what we've decided to do for our 50th episode extravaganza every 10th episode of those happy places has been an extravaganza of some kind we've done (laughs) Uh, ride design challenges, we've done fan fiction, we've done redesigns, uh, and now here in the fifth iteration of that, um, we've reached out to members of our listening community, members of the themed entertainment professional community, uh, creatives from around the internet, uh, with a couple of key questions that really get to the heart of what this podcast is is absolutely we've got five really great submissions in from uh various listeners uh who all have thoughts and opinions on on what it means to talk about theme parks and we are so grateful for all of the submissions and for everybody that listens uh and we're just gonna we're gonna get started we're gonna dive right on in yeah so the the questions that everybody was tasked with answering uh, were these. This is this is all coming from my Twitter at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. Um, let's see. So here are our guiding questions. As a form of literature, what do you find compelling about parks and attractions? What unique stories can they tell? And what is currently missing from the conversation when it comes to criticism and analysis of themed entertainment? And finally, and maybe most importantly... What are your hopes for the future of storytelling in theme parks, rides, and attractions? And how can these happy places become even more unique, thrilling, inclusive, and special? And I have been so pleased by the responses that we got, Alice. Uh, Are you ready to jump into our first one? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay, this first one comes to us from Cynthia Sharp. Uh, She is a themed experience and museum professional a regular contributor and member of themed entertainment television, which is a great project aimed at collecting the talents of themed entertainment professionals. It's really cool. 
Uh, and she wrote us an email. So if you'll allow me, Alice, I'm going to read this on behalf of Cynthia. Go on ahead. Okay. <clears throat> she says, Hiya, my two cents for what it's worth. I think one of the most exciting things about the future of theme parks and their storytelling potential is the shift we're in the midst of. From didactic narrative view to participatory exploration and world building. The inflection point of audiences moving from I was raised on movies to I was raised on video games has a profound impact on what guests want and expect from these spaces. And let me be clear, video games are art, they are storytelling. How that translates both on the nose, with the example of Super Nintendo World, and abstractly, like with the very intentional choice not to recreate a place from the movies in Galaxy's Edge, into theme parks is challenging, intriguing, and mad fun to wrestle with. It also puts huge, huge emphasis on the soft factors, the people who bring these spaces to life, the actors upon the stage of attractions. One of my best and most immersive moments ever in a theme park came at Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando. I was buying swag for my then-tween at the exit retail at Hogwarts. Two cashiers, one in a Slytherin tie, one in Gryffindor, were chatting with each other in a slightly sniping kind of way, which felt really authentic to the IP. I handed over my credit card, which has a photo of me on it as a security measure, to the Gryffindor who squinted at it, looked at me, completely normal, bog-standard transactional moment, and then shook my card, squinted at it again, and said, Your portrait's not moving. You might want to contact Gringotts about that. At, at which point, the two employees were off to the races, chatting with me. The Slytherin noted that I'd have no problem using the card in less savory areas of London and plunging me into their world. They made me a co-creator, a member of the community, of this built world in a way that took no more time than a standard, I'm buying a plush and a t-shirt, thanks, but which was hilarious and immersive. Supporting our front-of-house staff and treating them as the absolutely critical resource that they are is only going to grow in importance in the coming years. It also, and I know you're shocked I'm going with this, changes the game on how people want to see themselves in the story, or how they expect to see themselves in the story. If we're going to make open-ended, exploratory, playable worlds, art forms that our guests are co-creators of, we have to intentionally make space for all of our guests, not just the ones we're used to catering to or who look like characters from the 1950s. Cynthia. Oh, and Cynthia. Wow. What, what a response to our questions. I'm absolutely blown away. And it gave us a lot to think about. Yeah, Cynthia, this was a wonderful email. Thank you so much for sending it. It opened up our conversation as we were preparing for this episode I mean, we must have talked for an hour just on your email alone. <laughs> um, we wanted to connect it to some of our episodes that we've already that we've already done and talk about uh, like our conversation with Drew and Allie we did a few um, a few episodes ago and the importance of including and uplifting guests. And I wanted to throw it back all the way to our conversation um, that we had with 
the people from PJV destinations um, and talk about accessibility. It's not just about including guests in a way like like with you, like including them in the conversation about like, oh, let's pretend we're at Hogwarts. How fun is that? Um, but it's just as important to include people in accessible ways, making rides and experiences more accessible for people with disabilities or, um, or people who uh, come from all over the world to experience, you know, these theme parks who need uh, various accommodations and um, and who want to be included. They don't want to be taken out of the immersive the immersivity of it all, if you'll, <laughs> if you'll allow me to use a use a, a particular word, uh, it's and I just I love that story that you tell about that 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 cashier moment. It's you know we're we're just buying a buying a T-shirt, right? It shouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't think it would be such a um, an impactful moment, um, but you were included and uplifted in that moment and with those um, with those employees and. It's it's so special, and I'm so glad that you got to have that experience. Yeah, I mean, when you when you talk about that moment, the, that experience with those employees, and the way that a traditional, normal, casual, like transactional moment can become part of the theming, and how important it is that these front of house performers, and that's really what they were in that moment, right? Uh, are taken care of and allowed to work within the space and allowed to provide those moments. And that's just going to be more and more important, I feel like, as in terms of what we expect at theme parks and also in terms of what those front of house performers can expect as well, right? It, it needs to be said that these retail employees, which is probably what it says on their paychecks, were acting in that moment. They were providing a storytelling service. And without it, your day wouldn't have been as memorable and special. And that's exactly what we were talking about with Drew and Ali back in episode 49, right? It's this idea that every single member of these, uh, of these spaces, every person involved, needs to be able to be at that level for these moments to happen. And exactly. that doesn't... That doesn't just include uh, employees, right? It also includes guests, right? Because the idea of play in these big, complex, physical spaces is just, like, way more complicated than in a video game. Like, in a video game, you can program things so that when one thing happens, another thing always happens, right? There's, there's consistency in a designed virtual world. Or at least you can design consistency. Right. But in a theme park, you need to be able to be like variable and flexible because every experience with every guest is going to be different. And you have human factors influencing how people experience their day. If it's a good day, if it's a bad day, things break down or 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 somebody has a really magical moment in a simple transaction. Those are all things that theme parks can do that other types of media can't. Yeah, and and really the thing that I think is most important with these these little moments, these smaller moments, which it's funny, I think we're going to come back to this idea of smaller moments, little moments, uh, and their importance of the importance of those in themed entertainment. But these moments happen when everything is firing on all cylinders, when the human factor has the ability to be highlighted instead of being seen as some kind of 
uh, liability or limitation, right? When when we have that ability for uh, every individual thinker and experiencer of these moments uh, to engage genuinely and enthusiastically. Uh, and so we need to grapple with the fact that every single one of these interactions uh, comes with these needs for everybody involved that need to be like acknowledged and nourished and kind of even in some cases like like quelled or fended off right like the idea that an audience member has to be a or has the ability to be maybe is better a better way to put it a co-creator can be really anxiety inducing for some guests right so right. like, how do we make them feel safe? How do we welcome them in? How do we allow for that? How do we make them feel like socially and emotionally able to move within that space? A lot of it comes down to trusting in the performers, but also equipping your performers to be able to do that uh, and enabling them to be able to do that. Uh, so it's really interesting. Um, honestly, talking about this more and more talking about like all the all the little ways it can go wrong and all the little ways that we have to kind of trust each other reminds me of jurassic park um it reminds me of jeff goldblum's character talking about chaos theory right oh like, yeah like any sufficiently complex system has within it uh the capacity for absolute chaos right and <laughs> what's what's magical we've said this before about theme parks right the only real magic at theme parks is the people that make it not chaos because this system is so complex and so it's the 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 cast members the team members the employees whatever they might be called it's those people holding it all together and making it work and somehow that miracle being performed every single day that makes these places so special and that means that you have to kind of embrace chaos in order to successfully create these new and exciting kinds of experiences. Because otherwise, all you're ever going to get is scripted experience after scripted experience. And that is stagnation for the industry, in my opinion. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was really good. That's a really good conversation and definitely a conversation that we can and should continue in the future. Yeah. Um, but we've got a bunch of other uh, submissions to get to. We got to <laughs> keep going. Let's uh, let's move on. We have next a voicemail submission from Rob Yo. Yeah, Rob Yo is a themed entertainment creative and illustrator, one of the most talented creators of like speculative attraction design that I have ever seen. Uh, if you are not following Rob on Twitter, you are missing out on things like a rooftop bar for the uh, Hollywood Tower Hotel, uh, also known as the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, or a complete redesign of Tomorrowland that embraces like Art Nouveau and kind of like sweeping Gothic architecture with a lot of brass and like polished black. It's very cool. Um, so Rob sent us this email uh, and... Shall we roll that clip? Roll the clip. Hi, Alison, buddy. This is Rob Yo here. I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on making it to 50 episodes. As somebody who has made one episode of a podcast, and that took two years, I can really appreciate the amount of work you guys put in. So massive round of applause. 
Uh, in answer to your question, what do I find compelling about theme parks? I think the main thing is the ability for guests to create their own open-ended stories. Uh, because I feel that stories that guests can make up based on their visit are always going to be more meaningful and powerful than anything a designer can dream up. Uh, thinking about Cars Land, for instance, maybe you go during the day with your family, you ride Mater's Junkyard Jamboree, then you go to the Cozy Cone for a snack, and then maybe you do some shopping at Ramones, and that becomes your story of your time at Radiator Springs. But then again, someone else could come during the night, they could maybe have dinner at Flo's, watch the neon lights come up, uh, and then ride Radiator Springs races, and they've strung that into their own unique story about their day. And even though it's the same infrastructure, the same rides, the same shops and dining, the way you navigate it and the memories you make are going to create a completely different narrative uh, depending on what order you do it in and what mood you're in and what happened in between. And I think it's easy to underestimate those parts in favor of having grand narratives and rides where welcome test subjects, you're in a secret laboratory, here's the background story, here's where it started, and loading way too much narrative into that part uh, rather than just leaving it to guests to put together themselves. And in terms of the future, what I'd like to see more of is seamless technology. We do have a lot of technology right now, but it's got to be like a magic trick where it's invisible. Because if you can see the screens or the technology or the newest things someone shoved into a ride and you can tell that's what they've done, it's not going to work. So until you can make it completely invisible, then you probably shouldn't bother. Uh, I'd also like to see more non-IP-based attractions. I know that's pie in the sky at the moment because all the major parks are owned by giant media corporations who love their synergy, but I think there's always a time and a place for a story that only lives in the theme park, which makes it special. And it's not something you can just recapture by watching a movie of the ride or the TV show of the ride, something that exists solely in a space. I think it makes it more special sometimes. And I think another massive challenge is how do we build theme parks and attractions that are more environmentally conscious in terms of what materials are being used to build, how the energy is being generated, are there greener ways of running it, building it, and maybe electric vehicles, solar panels, anything like that, uh, just to make it have less of an ecological footprint. I think that's going to be a huge factor in anything that gets built from here on out. Anyway, congratulations again on making it to your golden anniversary. And yeah, I'd love to come back for the hundredth. Thank you, Rob. Thank you yeah, so much for definitely. that. Definitely. That really did spark some conversation for us as well. And the thing that stood out the most to me in the first part of your voicemail was this idea of like, build it yourself narratives, which is kind of becoming a trend uh, with what we're hearing from these themed entertainment professionals, right? Like, it's about guest engagement and how you choose to move through these themed spaces. Right. And everybody's got a different way that they move through the, the space and they can choose to tell their own story about the themed lands and how they approach them, the order in which they approach them, the food they choose, the attractions they choose, even how they get on the attractions. 
fast pass single rider how long the queue is how you know how long they have to wait is the queue interactive you know things like that yeah and and those things are all part of the story that we tell when we go to a theme park or we go to a themed environment right or even it's like when we go anywhere right to like yeah. a, to a new city or to a new country yeah, I mean, this reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about tours and tourism in cities way back in the history of the podcast. Um, but, like, that is, like, kind of the key appeal of what a themed environment can do, right? It can, like, kind of lay out these options in front of you, these different attractions and food venues and adventures and spaces to hang out. And you can, like move through them and craft a story just by like existing within them it's it's not that a story is written for them necessarily it's that you being there is a story uh and and it's it's kind of yeah exactly like it's an emulation of uh travel like like I, I hate to call it this, but like real life travel, I, tra <laughs> traveling to a theme park is a real thing that people do. Of and that course. is very real and makes <laughs> memories. And like, but you know what I mean? Like travel to a place that is unthemed, a, a more, uh, gosh, like organic place. If, gosh, that also sounds weird, <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. I know what you mean. I think our listeners will understand what you mean as well. <laughs> Anyways, every, every visit is going to be unique. It's going to be different. And yeah. the story of the visit isn't about these grand narrative attractions with these big stories that they tell. Instead, it's more about those small little build-it-yourself moments, right? Right. Every visit is different, and they should be different. Every, every single person that goes to visit a theme park or does any kind of travel should be able to have their own set of stories and experiences that that makes the experience like lived in for them. This is what I did at Disneyland the other day. This is what I did when I visited England. This is what I did when I, you know, like there, everybody's got their own version of the story. Uh, you got to take home that story uh, and tell it to all of your friends, whether they want to hear it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you have done that to me with all of your travel stories, including the ones, the theme parks. Yep. And and the stories that we share are part of our bond, right? It's like, remember when we did this at this place, this theme park. Do you remember park. when we rode Jurassic Park nine times? Nine times in a row. In a row. Uh, and they, <laughs> they did make us stop after nine. Um, they were like, no, we go, had... home. go home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> we had other stuff to do. Uh, like, you know, <laughs> hang out in, in dark alleyways at Universal Studios Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, like, it, it is about that story. And it, I think the most successful themed lands and theme parks, uh, they encourage the building of those stories in one really simple way. And this is this is a theory that I have. We can work on this maybe in a future episode. Okay. But I think it's really about density. Like, Rob, when you were talking about uh, Cars Land, the way that you were able to describe how you could move through that space and the different choices you could make. And it's not just like density of like things that are built, right? It's also density of 
experiences. Maybe something different happens between day and night. Uh, maybe certain shops are open or closed or neon lights are on or off, right? Uh, maybe there are different things that are available. You meet a character or you're able to purchase a different snack food or something like that. It's that density and the amount of like fulfilling, meaningful choices that you can make within that density that makes a really successful themed land. And I think that we feel less fulfilled when paths are linear and choices are limited. And I think that the challenge with theme park design then is how do you provide a density while also ensuring that everything is meaningfully placed and is there for a reason? I'm thinking a little bit about... Um, Nocturne Alley in Wizarding World of Harry Ooh, Potter. Yeah. And the fact that, like, it's hidden a little bit and can be hard to find, and yet it is, like, a, a dense part of the theming. Like, it doesn't need to be there. It is, and it adds to the specialness of experiences within there. So that's that's what I'm thinking of the most when it comes to, like, how do we encourage the crafting of build-it-yourself narrative? And it's density, density, density. Uh, and that's part of what makes Disneyland especially special for me is that it's like one of the most densest turned in on itself spaces that you could ever really imagine, right? Right, right. I was uh, I was just recently at California Adventure and the conversation that I had while I was there was the difference in density between Disneyland and California Adventure was that uh, I spent 12 hours at California Adventure and I rode uh, three of the rides multiple times. Um, wow. I rode I rode Guardians of the Galaxy four times. I rode the Incredicoaster three times. Uh, if I was at Disneyland for twelve hours, I don't think I would have been able to do the same. Like there was there was just more rides and more attractions that I wanted to cram in twelve hours at Disneyland than yeah. I did it. Right. And so like, and those are just those are sister parks. They share a, a an opening space. Like they're <laughs> an esplanade. They share an esplanade. They're like the same place, but they have different levels of density. And it makes a difference on like the not it does not necessarily make a difference of how much you can enjoy the park, but it makes a difference on like how um how like your experience is that day and, and like the amount of different experiences you can have in, in one day. Yeah. I think maybe an interesting experiment is like, like when you look at those two parks and their uh, attraction lists, they might look kind of similar in like the amount of attractions you could list. But Disneyland is like all A sides <laughs> <laughs> where where California Adventure feels like it has room for some of the B sides. Um, sure. And it also has just fewer choices per land and it feels like there's more open spaces and that can that can also affect like how you tell a story like nobody tells a story about walking from one place to another uh like oh today i went to the store i walked there on the way <laughs> i took many steps like okay it's not really a story right unless but, something is like happening unless something unusual or out of the ordinary happens right. during your walk Right. And so at Disneyland, it feels like every couple of steps, you're running into something new. So we were on our way to the Haunted Mansion, but we saw that Pirates of the Caribbean had a short line. So we ducked down that direction. 
And when we we got out the exit, we we went right to Haunted Mansion, right? But there was a jazz band on the way. Right. (laughs) And see, there's like stuff everywhere. And it's it's full to bursting. And that comes with its own operational challenges. But like density, density, density. I think when when we look at the successes of Disneyland specifically, I feel like that's what what it really brings to the table. And that's something that only really blossomed over decades. So we'll see if California Adventure ever really gets there. Sure, they might fill in some of those spaces, some (laughs) of those gaps eventually. Uh, Something else that Rob talked about that I want to touch on before we move on to the next submission. It's actually, I want to touch on it, but it's a huge conversation. that It's maybe too big for right here and right now. We might have to dedicate an entire episode about it. but uh, But Rob brought up a really, really important point about the environmental impacts of theme parks and um, and uh, about like the space that theme parks take up. And we, uh, God, we must have talked for, for a really long time this afternoon trying to parse out like what exactly it means for for these theme parks to, to the space that they take up and the amount of energy that they use and the amount of water they use and like the ethical like questions that theme parks and and themed spaces like this can um can you know bring up yeah it's it's a question that goes beyond our current expertise as analysts maybe a weak spot of ours um but when i think about it like theme parks are land like that is like fundamentally at their at their basis level they they have to take up space on land or right. i guess i guess you could build one on like an oil platform or on a cruise <laughs> ship or something but like that but even then that's still like space that's still like like an, an area of the earth that is taken up by by a theme park Every, yeah. and everything takes up space houses buildings schools <laughs> every everything obviously takes up space but theme yeah. parks um theme parks have use a lot of resources and require a lot of people and they also provide a lot of jobs and they you know and a lot of joy and entertainment but like disneyland was a series of like orange groves and (laughs) um and Knott's berry farm was literally a berry farm (laughs) yeah and and when you think about orlando parks and how they were basically just like wetlands right swamps the everglades that sort of thing uh it's hard to imagine that there would be like the development that there is in those areas were it not for Disney World existing, right? Um, or were it not for, you know, Universal to decide to compete in that space? Were it not for the price of land out there being why Walt Disney chose to build his next project there, right? Like, uh, California maybe was always going to be developed, but Florida, that area of Florida specifically... To me, I think it's kind of a big question mark if it ever becomes as developed as we see now. Um, right, right. If and- it's if it's swamps and wetlands, it's not exactly like conducive for, um, you know, for a lot of big neighborhoods and stuff. Until suddenly, oh, here's a giant theme park, and now a global there's, destination, and now there's a huge city that surrounds it. Yeah. Um, could anything else have gone in that swamp um, that would have? attracted that big of a city to grow around it um we will never know even if even if orlando had you know continued to grow and develop it wouldn't have developed in the same way right and and that means that means that the parks had an effect that is kind of immeasurable environmentally speaking 
Right. So when we talk about like, oh, more sustainable ways to run the theme parks, I'm thinking about how big they are. And like you said, all the resources and all of the like little ways that it affects their communities to even exist, Um, which is just so deep of a question. Absolutely. Um, And and so the one thing I want to say about this that is like my thinking point as we kind of move into maybe researching this and turning this into an, an episode topic is that the one thing I wish there was more of and kind of know there can't be is like indie theme parks. Like <laughs> some of them exist. They, they do exist. They're out there. Small time amusement parks run by maybe a family or something, right? Um, I'm thinking about Sonoma's Train Town, which, you know, I visited years ago, but it's still there and run by a family. And sure. it's just kind of on a, a lot in Sonoma. Sure. Um, and there are like random, like, um, like privately owned uh, water parks, you know, scattered here and there or like a, a random theme park. But it's really just a, a two mini roller coasters and a Ferris wheel, you know, or like, like a mini golf course or something <laughs> like that. Right. Sure. <laughs> like these things exist. They're, they're out there, but. When we talk about, like, themed entertainment, capital T, capital E, they're usually these, like, huge endeavors. And when we talk about themed parks, uh, it's usually a collection of three to five companies, depending on what you consider a theme park versus an amusement park. Um, And these really big companies are the ones who get to make the choices about what gets built and what doesn't. And they also have the resources to build or not build things. They have the ability to expand or not expand. They have the ability land. Right, to influence um, local governments um, <laughs> to to change development and to allow, you know, certain building standards in place. Yeah. Yeah, you know, no, no telling how this will end up. But currently, Disney is not embroiled, but kind of working their way through this proposal where they're trying to change zoning laws in the city of Anaheim so that they can expand, you know, uh, re redefine what areas of the city are zoned for. Um, on the other hand, Disney pays big taxes to the city of Anaheim and yeah. has given certain things to the city of Anaheim in terms of urban development that are, you know, valuable and worthwhile and, and good. And of course there's the job factor, but like, these are constantly shifting social, political, environmental, labor relations considerations that we need to make when we talk about what a theme park is. Uh, and why I said there are no independent theme parks at the beginning of this is like maybe independent theme parks, indie theme parks, which is a a new thing that I'm going to keep thinking about, <laughs> of which we know there are a few examples, but maybe they would be more efficient smaller you know a little bit more friendly towards labor which i know is going to be more and more important right uh maybe a little bit more environmentally ethical uh and they wouldn't need to be these massive undertakings they could still be attractions they could still be um sustainable from a business standpoint but they wouldn't need to be these like all-encompassing massive global destinations and I, I think the more of those that we start to see somehow maybe the more changes we'll see even at the higher tiers at these big five or big three depending on what you consider a theme park uh <laughs> at these big five theme parks like maybe we'll start to see some of those things enter the industry as that develops and i think there is space right now for that and i'd really like to see more of it yeah, 
I I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, Alice, uh, I really liked that conversation. Are you ready to move on to the voicemail from our next contributor? Absolutely. Our next contributor, our next voicemail is from Liam Findlay. Yeah, Liam is an attraction designer and a theme park and museum scent creative over at Aroma Prime, which is like the premier themed scents creation lab in the world uh really cool stuff going on over at aroma prime that is um, an absolutely incredible job description and <laughs> one of one of the coolest things i've ever heard and i'm like uh, uh, almost starstruck that um that this is the kind of person that we get uh, involved <laughs> in our in in this discourse that we have um, yeah this, it's such a cool job and liam has left us like a really interesting voicemail yeah, so are you ready to roll that clip? Roll that clip. My interests predominantly lie in the use of scent as a silent voice in the storytelling of theme parks. And this isn't necessarily all about the artificial scents in rides like Soarin or Ratatouille, um, but also about organic scents or even where scent shouldn't be used in order to make it stand out more um, where it is emphasised. Unless we're not able to smell, we're pretty much always taking aromas and subconsciously reacting to them, like we react to sights, sounds and changes in temperature. You might not even register the light, comforting essence of wood and rope as you're climbing the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse, but it does contribute to how the whole experience comes across to you. You know this is a place of comfort because your mind associates it with other times you've sniffed these things, walking through forests or climbing ropes at a play park during childhood, for example. Our scent receptors are directly connected to the part of the brain which processes memories and emotions, so smell has a much bigger influence on how we react to a themed environment than we might actually think. I would love to see a greater appreciation and analysis of how even the most subtle changes in aroma affect theme park experiences. And I might even like to see some academic research. I think that would be quite fabulous. There's a lot to explore and scent in general is really unexplored. And um, so there's an awful lot to unpack when it comes to scent and theme parks. There's a lot more to it than just shoving some oil into a, a smell it's uh <laughs> and calling it a day all right yes so good so Excellent. good thank you so much liam for sending that in this is such an interesting conversation and one that i genuinely feel like i haven't hardly ever paid attention to but i have so many ideas now <laughs> <laughs> we've had conversations where we say something like oh pirates of the caribbean water like and and we just like know what that means, right? Right. Oh, Main Street popcorn. Like, right. like it's not. It, we we just like, like say smell no, smell names. Sure. Uh, so oh, yeah. S- Star Tours. Cal- oh, it's the rubber at Star. The rubber. It's the rubber and hydraulics at Star Tours yeah. for some reason. Yeah. Going to say the pumpkin smell. You mentioned the pumpkin smells uh, before for Soren, but uh, Soren over California had you know orange groves. Um, sort of over the world um, has grass and um, oh, and I noticed this most recent time uh, flying over the Taj Mahal, you get jasmine pumped in really? there, which is so delightful. Interesting. I don't think I've ever noticed the jasmine over the Taj Mahal, but mostly was- that's because it's a 1998 render 
of a CG Taj Mahal. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. But I, uh, I took a big whiff, and I was, I was very enchanted. Um, as, as you know, as much as I miss Sword Over California, that uh, <laughs> those smells that were pumped in really helped make Sword Over the World like a extra special, like thing that I had. Yeah. I feel like I hadn't really gotten to um, to appreciate before. Yeah. Um, Mostly because I was just missing California. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really love Soarin' Over California, but that's a that's a conversation for a different time. Um, I think the way that we talk about smells in themed areas, themed experiences, is pretty shallow, all things considered. Like, you and me, when we talk about them. Not we, like the capital we, the royal we. I think, <laughs> I think there are people out there that talk about them in, in, in depth. Um, but you and I in our conversations we'll like name it and like say that it matters but we won't like talk about why or where it comes from and, and that's that been we a... should change that <laughs> yeah we should we should and so alice um you did actually I which, did, actually. which is wild we we are not allowed to talk to, to each other about things we want to do because we are too fast <laughs> uh and you alice white the premier scholar on uh, theme parks, rides, and attractions on this podcast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, you, you're the premier scholar on this podcast. No, um, you are absolutely uh, the premier I just, scholar. I just decided that you got too many theorems and um, <laughs> and too many theories and too many like like classification systems. And so I made one. I have I, we, we we did that a few episodes ago. That's true. Um, I, and now I've got another one. This is minor, and we may expand upon this later. But I believe I, that this could be its own episode, for sure. I definitely wanted to very quickly talk about, um, and this is heavily influenced from, from Liam's voicemail, um, I wanted to talk about three different um, themed smell categories. The Alice White themed smell categorization system. Sure, that sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Um, so to, to go off of... Um, off of this voicemail, this amazing voicemail, what inspired me to to kind of break these things down was um, is actually the line you specifically said when you talked about the ropes and the wood at the Smith fam Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. Um, and Buddy, you asked me, um, you said, oh, or you said, uh, does Disneyland rope just smell special? And I was like, I'm pretty sure it just smells like rope <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's not disneyland rope i just think that you um that you don't often smell rope and that the only time <laughs> you ever really really smelled it up close was in a place like disneyland and to be clear it's like the ropes that are on like um like like in queues right is what is what i'm right. mostly like, remembering is yeah. like the the like twine smell that comes off of them sure is, the rope is... that you pull on the indiana jones queue yeah. or the ropes that make up the bridge over the Tarzan's treehouse because we don't right. have Swiss Family Robinson anymore. Well, it's the, um, the same rope and wood smell, I imagine. Sure. And I said, I think it just smells like rope and wood, um, which inspired me to create three different smell categories. Um, the okay. first one is the easiest one. Um, the first one is called intentional. Uh, intentional smells are in chosen scents deployed with intention. Like, uh, like on Soarin' Over California, Soarin' Over the World, uh, Ratatouille, you use as an example, great example. These scents are uh, designed and pumped into rooms to uh, intentionally invoke um, certain uh, memories, certain experiences, certain feelings, certain emotions, and things that are, uh, that are attached to smells like that. 
Um, they are pumped in a very specific times and events. Um, this is a intentional smell. Yeah, I, and there are plenty of intentional smells that might seem unintentional or that are invisible. Um, there is a myth that Disneyland is intentionally pumping uh, sweet candy and popcorn smells all over the park. Actually, their stuff just smells like that. Um, but... <laughs> right. It's not that they are um, they are pumping in the smell of sweet candy and stuff. It's that they make a lot of sweet candy and stuff <laughs> and things just and they, smell they good. allow that stuff to to permeate. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, so like that's actually kind of in the middle of a couple of categories because I would say that it's definitely intentional. They want you to smell that stuff, but I don't know if they're like creating those scents purposefully behind the scenes and deploying them with purpose so i'm going to i'm i'm gonna say that maybe that idea of like the the ambient smell of the churros and of the you know things that that you just smell as you walk by um i'm going to kind of go ahead and include those include those in my second category uh which is accidental smells um, these are smells, scents in theme parks that have become um, iconic or recognizable, but were not intentionally included in the space. So the smell of the Pirates of the Caribbean water is is a classic example of what I call an accidental smell. Um, that uh, the bromine that they use to um, to scent the water is a chemical that all that all Disney uses Disney uses it all over the park to uh, clean to keep the water clean and um, it, ha it has various other properties and so there's a lot of bromine in the water um, but when you're on a different water ride say like a splash mountain it doesn't smell quite the same as it does on Pirates of the Caribbean which is a combination of the bromine in the water and like the must and the uh, experience of being underground which has now created an iconic smell um, that is instantly recognizable, but was not intentional. They didn't set out to make a smell for Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, they just landed on one by accident. Um, yeah. and, and so I think that maybe it's the same for like walking down Main Street and what you smell is the pop, the, the combination of like a popcorn and candied apples and caramel apples and the ice cream shop and the, uh, churro stands and the, you know, and all of the people around and those smells all mixed together to create an accidental smell of Main Street. It doesn't right. smell like anything specific and they didn't do it on purpose. It's an accidental smell. Yeah. And, and the accidental smells can be very natural to their environment. Um, that said, I think the next category is like even more about naturally existing within the environment, right? Sure. So if, you know, yeah, you're walking down Main Street and you're smelling all of the accidental smells of, um, you know, of the various foods and, and of the people that are there. And, and Main Street has a very specific, like, scent memory for a lot of people. Um, the other category I have is called intrinsic smells. Um, intrinsic smells are scents based off of the environment or construction materials used to create the space but aren't specific to that one place. Something like the ropes and wood used at the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse, which I could also smell at the Tarzan Treehouse, that I could also <laughs> smell on the Pirate Ship Columbia, um, that I can, you know, the, the, that's rope and wood and that's what it smells like and therefore so do these places. Um, yeah. 
in on Autopia, you can smell gas being burned. Um, and I can also smell that on the tram on the way from the Mickey and Friends parking structure. Or on Harbor Boulevard. On Harbor Boulevard. <laughs> These are like intrinsic smells, smells that just exist because of the materials that were used to create the space. And, and there's overlap, you know? Like, like just because the Pirates of the Caribbean water smells like Pirates of the Caribbean or the Star Tours hydraulics smells like Star Tours. And therefore, we kind of put them in accidental because they feel like they stumbled into being iconic and identifiable. They are intrinsic to how the rides were designed. It's not as if they were like, oh, this is going to be special Pirates of the Caribbean water that's only for Pirates of the Caribbean. It is part of the unintentional design here. It It is intrinsic to the space. It's just that there's something about the way they interact within the space that turns them iconic, that turns them into identifiable smells that would, for me, move them from intrinsic into accidental. Where intrinsic smells are, I, I don't know, they're not always unpleasant, but they're just not about that place. They're just smells. Um, and I feel like that's that can be good and, and can be an effective part of sense memory at a theme park. But they are kind of, I don't know, less identifiable, less meaningful. Uh, no, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And obviously this um, smell categorization is not is not set in stone <laughs> and it's definitely a work in progress. Um, and there's absolutely some overlap. But I think part of that, too, uh, that like the difference between what I would call an accidental or an intrinsic um, like scent would be um like memory like memories that are induced like uh, or like uniqueness if the pirates of the caribbean smell if you could smell that on every single water ride it wouldn't be as i think iconic or recognizable right yeah it'd just be like the intrinsic smell of disney water right it's the difference between disney water ride water smell and pirates of the caribbean and those are two different smells there is a kind of depth to Pirates of the Caribbean water that is so unique. And yeah, it is partially because that ride goes under underground into an old building that smells a certain way. But that's just like part of the appeal, right? It, it's part of the sense memory that gets activated. It's not activated in the same way on, say, Grizzly River Run, right? Which right. is also treated with bromine. Right. Um, and is a super great ride. Very, very fun. <laughs> kind of underrated, yeah. <laughs> Does not smell the same. Not nope. the same smell. Uh, and so that's the difference between intrinsic. Intrinsic is just Disney water. It's water treated with bromine, and it is important. But uh, accidental smells become synonymous with the ride in a way that an intentional smell sometimes can only dream to be. Yeah, the intentional uh, smell wants to become as iconic as the accidental smell. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting. And I feel like as a smell engineer, Liam, uh, as somebody who, who crafts smells for places, you might be a voice that is definitely somebody we should listen to more about when it comes to how smells are crafted within theme spaces uh, and how intentionality and maybe unintentionality uh, can sometimes collide to create these sense memories for guests. So it has been fascinating exploring the world of smells. Alice, I am honored to have witnessed the birth of yet another 
themed entertainment categorization system, which has become a hobby of ours on the show. Uh, and I hope that over the course of the next couple of episodes, we're able to refine this. And heck, maybe this is its own episode as well. I would absolutely love that. I would love to continue to explore this. Um, we got to keep we got to keep talking to Liam about this because it's a fascinating topic. Yeah. Um, and I think, though, that it's time to move on. Okay, Alice, are you ready to read the next letter from yes. one of our longtime contributors, listeners, supporters? Uh, I am honored to introduce Awesome Chowdhury. Yes, Awesome Chowdhury, who uh, has contributed many times to the show. We always, always, always appreciate hearing from. Uh, Awesome has a blog and someday podcast uh, called The Study Room um, and has some like really interesting thoughts all the time about like media and experiences like in general. So uh, and this is an email, not a voicemail. So I will read this. It's from Awesome. Dear Allison Buddy, it's interesting to think about. Of course, not that long ago, I didn't think much about theme parks at all. Then I found this podcast and it made me think about them in a whole new light. I gained an appreciation, but more than that, I began to care about them. I began to think about them critically and think about what stories they were telling. One thing that gripped me immediately about rides as storytelling devices is that they can do what no other form of storytelling can do. Move you. Yes, I've said before that I was moved by films, like how Saving Private Ryan moved me to tears and made me truly wonder about what it means to be a good person, or how Phantom Thread moved me from an upright position to a horizontal one because of how boring it is. (laughs) It's a movie about a temperamental dressmaker, what was I expecting? (laughs) Uh, But it's certainly a different experience from being physically moved, whether you want to be or not. Unlike movies, TV, books, or graphic novels, ride-telling doesn't just engage the mind, but also brings the whole body into the situation and forces you to feel what the storytellers want you to feel. Not a whole lot of room for interpretation when you're being rocketed towards, away from, or spun in a teacup. So that's something that's really interesting and unique about rides. I know you did an episode on motion as a metaphor, but I think it could be more literal than that. And I think it's something that could be explored more about in rides. It's more than just, it's more than the set dressing and the ride vehicle that's part of the story. Coming from a literary perspective, I can see the temptation to focus on the more traditional forms of storytelling, but I think motion is an underrated part of the theme park story experience, and I'd love to hear more about the work the motion is doing in ride telling. As for the future of theme park storytelling, it's hard to say. Media moves so quickly now. Television shows and movies are telling different stories in different ways than they were even 10 years ago. Podcasts, ever heard of them? (laughs) Have changed the discussion around media as a whole. But bricks and mortar are slow. Ride design is slow. I am always looking for better representation in media, especially racial representation and representation of the LGBT plus community. The biggest name in the theme park business isn't exactly on the bleeding edge of representation for either. I wonder if theme parks ever can keep up with the zeitgeist. Even things that are relatively uncontroversial, well, at the time at least, like Harry Potter at Universal and Star Wars at Disney, were barely timely. If I recall, the wonderful one-tabulous wizarding world of wizardly wonderment of Harry Potter opened three years after the final Harry Potter movie, and Galaxy's Edge opened around the time of the final Skywalker film. Although with Star Wars under Disney's umbrella, more content is inevitable. It just seems like with social progress, the best we do is see a ride that's a sanitized snapshot of what the general feelings were 10 
10 years ago. That's even if it's something that's appropriate for theme parks. Maybe theme parks should be the one place where we keep it light. Maybe theme parks should be the place where Santa can still be real and the Mickey who signed your autograph book is for sure the real Mickey Mouse. Anyway, thank you, Alice. Thank you, buddy, for continuing to put out this podcast and getting me to think and care about things I never thought I'd think or care about. I wish I had more solutions to offer than questions, but I think you caught me on one of those days. Those happy places remains a highlight of my day any day I get a chance to listen. Keep it up. All the love to both you and the wonderful listeners of THP, Oslam. Excellent. What so a good. great response to our guiding questions. And so good. And such nice, kind words, too. Thank you, Awesome, for, for the like love that you send and the support and everything. That's like really nice. Yeah, I'm seriously honored to have support from listeners at all. But to have support from listeners who contribute in such meaningful ways is always a joy. So thank you, Awesome, for that email and for your response. So I'd like to respond to the first part about being moved right uh because i think we do take it for granted that although motion is a metaphor according to our theory of motion as metaphor uh motion is literal (laughs) uh rides move you uh literally speaking and that's wild it is the one big main thing that a ride or attraction does that a movie or book or video game unless it's like one of those fancy arcade video games with like motion within them but you know that that those things cannot do that rides and attractions (laughs) can do when we talk about these places taking up space this is why they take up space because you need to be moved and you need to be moved through physical space for this medium to exist and be distinct from other mediums right It's so easy to forget uh, with this podcast specifically because like our thesis statement is that rides are literature. Um, (laughs) So it's really easy to forget that rides are rides. (laughs) Like it's, it's so, it's so easy to forget. And I feel like we do that sometimes where we talk so much about the storytelling and about the like metaphors behind it that we forget to talk about the part where you actually like move and or where you drop and the adrenaline rushes and how much that that adrenaline or that like physical moving experience can affect how the story is told we talked about it a little bit in motion as metaphor um like one of my favorite examples is talking about like splash mountain and at the very very beginning of the ride like before you've even gone into the um the parts with the animatronics and the singing um, where you kind of get a series of itty bitty teeny tiny drops and like kind of wavy motions throughout and it part of it is to help you build up speed um, to take you through the rest of the ride they're like really getting the water flowing fast there um, but it also uh, provides the metaphor of like you're a little rabbit and you're dipping and dodging through the different caves and stuff it kind of puts you into that into that feeling and that's like the metaphor of a oh it's the or a simile even where you're like oh I feel like a rabbit while while I bounce around like this but we talk about it like that like oh it feels like you're a rabbit but what we don't talk about is oh all of those little drops got my heart rate pumping and got me like really excited for more of the ride Um, and you know the first drop that is not like the big one got me ready for the big one and it you know like and how it feels like a physical uh, a physical need to like 
get you ready for the for the big climax of the ride, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's like the the physics need, right, of the pacing here, as well as the yeah, like the expectations of the audience. There should be a grand finale, right? Like that that is that feels right in terms of motion. And yet, uh, a lot of rides actually kind of struggle to have a grand finale because uh, of the law of conservation of energy, right? Like, <laughs> the, the end of it can't be the biggest, fastest part necessarily because it's the end of the roller coaster or it's after the big drop, right? And, like, there, there are rules that need to be uh, abided by. And, uh, you know, that's, that's for anything that uses momentum as a major movement factor. I'm thinking about rides where motion is much more uh, deliberate and controlled and, uh, you know, made by a ride system moving in certain ways. Your your um, Transformers The Rides Ooh, and yeah. your your uh, Indiana Joneses, your Stars Tour, as it were, <laughs> where, where something that stood out to me in Aslam's letter is this idea that um, we are moved whether we want to be or not. And that's a really interesting concept of like choice, control, even your ability to agree to the movement, right? Like it's going to happen one way or another. You know, getting on the ride is the one choice you make in many cases. Right. Um, and other than that, the ride is just happening the way that the ride will happen. Uh, and I think that's interesting. The idea of choice in rides is something that is more and more a focus as our focus in uh, themed land design becomes more and more about, you know, telling a story for yourself. The attractions are also becoming about like, you are part of this. You are here. You are within this. Which way will you steer the Millennium Falcon? Right? <laughs> like, which how which spider bot will you shoot at in in Web Slingers? Oh, it's so um, much fun. <laughs> I hear it's a lot of fun. It's you so told fun. me. <laughs> but like, you know, it's it's about choice and interactivity, but motion is one of those things that it's really hard to allow choice for. Um, and that's simply because, again, physics needs, right? Like, you can't be like, actually, I would not like the roller coaster to drop here. <laughs> I would like path B, please. Um, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh that that is not within the scope of reality my dude so like it's an interesting idea to think about like this whether we want to or not how much do you want to spin not do you want to spin you know like these are the choices that we have um and so that's something that that i want to expand on and maybe turn into its own episode like the notion of choice in motion but also like physical limitations on motion uh i'm i'm reminded of a piece of concept art that keeps popping up on twitter i wish i could attribute it to something other than i saw it a bunch of times on twitter <laughs> um but it was a piece of concept art for uh the indiana jones adventure um and it depicts the jeep doing a front flip oh my gosh have you seen this yes it's, i it's have super cool now the jeep even in concept is not meant to actually do a front flip. The apparent motion to the audience, based on a projection on the ceiling and floor, or based on the room rolling, 
would be that the Jeep did a front flip. But in reality, no Jeep containing passengers with a single lap belt could ever be made to do a front flip in any kind of safe way uh, for a ride of this type. And so I think that's really interesting is that there are like these limitations that creative people behind these rides are grappling with. They're trying to imply motion beyond the limitations that they are saddled with because of physics and physical strain on ride systems and safety regulations. They're trying to push and expand what they can do. And there are always going to be limits on that. And I think that means that in some ways there are limits on not the kinds of stories we can tell, because I think that is not limited by physics, but limits on the ways we tell those stories, I think, is something that we are running up against because of physics in this specific medium. Uh, and so I'd like to continue to explore that perhaps in a future episode. Thank you for that inspiration. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Awesome, for, for that. Uh, just, I guess, just one more um, one more point on uh, Awesome's uh, email before we move on to the next submission. Um, is uh, And this is just the tiniest little thing, but something I, I just wanted to, to say. Oh, yeah. When you said um, that with Star Wars under Disney's umbrella, that more content is inevitable... Um, uh, yeah, they're not done making, uh, Harry Potter stuff. They're not done with the Wizarding World. They're absolutely not. There's no way. As never-ending content, even as it's falling out of favor, even as people are becoming more critical of it for good reason, um, and obviously, uh, more critical of the creator for extremely good reasons, um, I don't think that's gonna stop. I don't think they're gonna stop expanding that. I don't think they're gonna change that. It's too big of a cash cow. They're not gonna let it go. We're supposed to get three more Fantastic Beast movies, for goodness sake. We will see about we'll that. We'll see if that ever happens, because we were supposed to already have, like, five Avatar movies, and that <laughs> hasn't happened either. But, <laughs> you know, it's just... I, I think that the the Wizarding World is gonna stay around for a while, um, I, and I think we're gonna keep getting more. Um, and that's... Um, and that's part of the conversation, the bigger conversation we've had before and will continue to always have about um, theme parks as uh, museum pieces versus theme parks as evolving living things. That we can have um, like parts of the theme park that are snapshots of the snapshots of the past um, or as like oh, this, this thing will stay because of nostalgia, but also the need for theme parks to keep evolving with their audience. Yeah. Um, and people have very powerful opinions about which things should stay and which ones should go. Um, but um, like Universal specifically does not like to move on from IPs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but another example was like, um, like you said, like Star Wars and, and Harry Potter world all kind of came a little later than they should. But like a, a good counter example is the fact that the Jurassic Park ride was being made be while the movie was being made. Like they, yeah. they, that was like, that's like maybe the exception that proves the rule, but that's like the, the one example I can think of where they were fully intent on having this ride and this area available, like the second that the movie came out as like a cross promotion. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, it was done within the year. 
and how rare that is speaks to how big of a gamble it was. Um, Definitely. Because if Jurassic Park wasn't any good, or if nobody liked it, or if it wasn't a huge smash hit, perhaps building a ride that you wanted to last for 20, 30, 40 years wouldn't have been the best decision for a cross promotion. Right. You know, what if they had just what if they had decided to make the um, Harry Potter into a theme park after the release of the first movie? Um, and then what if um, all of the rest of the movies were really well, I mean, not, I mean, a lot of a like, lot of the rest of the movies are, are were not so good. good. But I mean, like, what <laughs> if they hadn't been huge, massive blockbuster successes? Yeah. Like what? Uh, like what? What if? Like it's it. it, it would have been such a huge gamble and 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 it is such a huge like they put so much resources and and time and money into making the wizarding world of harry potter that they were only able to do so after they already knew it was a success yeah Um, Uh, and and harry potter is this remarkable example of a property that seems from the outside like a surefire classic forever and that those who are plugged in who know about the author's transphobic remarks have changed their opinions on um and who like continue to grow critical and distant from that property but bricks and mortar are slow right and a huge huge investment was made and these these areas do exist and they are providing profit not to mention meaningful narrative experiences for the people who go there and i think that's interesting right like we will move socially politically usually in positive ways i hope in positive ways (laughs) i hope we're always moving in positive ways um but can a place that needs to be built that is supposed to stand the test of time ever really hope to do that i mean we look now at disneyland and the existence of the the Jungle Cruise, right? Uh, Which is currently undergoing massive renovations, but which has ingrained within it problematic racist segments. Uh, How do you move past that? How do you you continue to change at a pace that is commensurate with the growth of knowledge, awareness, and desire to not be a part of something like that? And how do you move out of a legacy of having that stuff in your park? It's a thing that these theme parks need to continually grapple with. Um, and so it's a bigger question than we have ever really chosen to grapple with. We have talked about the speed of change at theme parks, right? It is slow. <laughs> it is slow, but also sometimes faster than you might expect or sometimes faster than it needs to be. And so I wonder, like, what will we see with regard to properties that companies are willing to bet on and build in-depth themed lands for and uh what will we see in terms of change away from hurtful harmful or problematic parts of themed rides lands and attractions we've seen it with pirates of the caribbean we're going to see it very soon with splash mountain there is positive change on the way does that mean that it will happen completely or fast enough it's a question and it's a meaningful and important one so i hope i hope that we see better representation and more inclusive spaces when it comes to narrative and when it comes to properties or ideas explored on rides and attractions absolutely
And Alice, I think that brings us to our final contributor of the day. Yeah, we have uh, one last voicemail. Um, this voicemail is from fellow podcaster Andrew Spawn. Yeah, Andrew Spawn is the voice and brain behind an excellent podcast called Amusement Sparks, on which we were honored to be guests quite recently. Yes, very recently we were featured on a fun uh, episode where we pitched our ideas for a, a theme park land um, that would include Atlantis, The Lost Empire, and Treasure Planet, two <laughs> criminally underrated films. Um, we pitched a lot of fun ideas about domes and about <laughs> um, about trains and all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if you haven't listened to any of Amusement Sparks yet and you're looking for a way to get into it, I can highly recommend the episode that we were on because I had a lot of fun recording it and listening back to it was just as much fun. Uh, it's a great show. Um, but we heard from Andrew for the extravaganza. And so, Alice, are you ready to roll that clip? Play that clip. Hi, Buddy and Alice. Congratulations on making it to 50 episodes and three years, too. That's pretty awesome. I know you're a little bit past three years, but it's a good milestone. Pretty impressive. Um, this is your friend, Andrew Spawn, from the Amusement Sparks podcast. Thank you guys for being a guest on, on my show. I really like listening to your show. I think that there's a lot to appreciate about theme parks, and uh, it's an underrepresented thing in, in podcasts, the way that we approach it, at least. I love the way that you approach it as as literature and giving it the consideration and kind of intellectual consideration that it deserves. I think that's really awesome. Part of what's important to me about theme parks is that they're the space between our reality and fandoms. It's more than just playing a video game or something where you get to walk around in that world um, because you get to be yourself and you get to bring your own experiences to it. And I, I don't know, it's like walking through, it's so immersive right? They're um, worlds we can visit and worlds we, we might want to live in, but we can never actually live in them, which is kind of an interesting ethereal thing. You know, you can go back there every day if you want to, but you can't ever really be a part of that world. Um, yeah. The attractions and the characters, like the big marquee things are very recognizable and that's what draws people to the parks. But I think the subtle details are what really make them for me. Like it's the little things that really, um, are the things I'll be remembering, you know, years later. Of course, I'll remember the name of the roller coaster, etc. But the little touches, the little architectural details, or the little notes and um, the queue areas. We we talked about when you when the three of us were brainstorming a um, Treasure Planet in Atlantis uh, theme park on amusement parks. We were talking about how the queue areas could be some of our favorite parts, just because it's like you get to live and walk through that world. Um, it's not a big choreographed roller coaster type thing. It's just you get to kind of slowly walk through it. And it's a lot more immersive in those moments, in those quiet moments. You know, I think maybe the quiet moments are what really make those happy places, for me at least, as um, I may be a total weirdo. But like as a fan of, of art and color schemes and sound design and um, immersion and these things that kind of can come from... Um, so many different places in the art appreciation world and have them all happen at once and you get to walk through it. It's such a cool, magical thing. Um, yeah, and, and it happens a lot more in theme parks than it does in like children's museums, which are another place where this can really be executed well. And uh, yeah, I just, I love that about theme parks. 
so I know that I'm rambling, but uh, this is an important uh, topic to me, and I've I've been talking about it for a lot of hours on on my show and on other shows I've guested on. But I just I love the future of theme parks. I think it's super exciting to think about because we're in an amazing place even right now with what theme parks are doing, um, and everything is building on what came before. You know, the the theme park industry is relatively new, but but every ten years it's it's shifted so much in such a positive way in my experience, and I think we're getting better and better every year. So yeah, it's it's curious to see what happens um, in the next ten years. I'm curious to see what yeah what happens on your 300th episode. You know, what are we talking about as far as what theme parks are up to at the point that point in time? My hope for like the future of storytelling in theme parks and rides and attractions is I want to see more interactive features. Um, maybe taking cues from role playing games and virtual reality. Um, making the park guests feel like they are important instead of they're just walking through your thing. It's like they're bringing their own story or their own decisions into this attraction. Um, and when the experience is different based on who the user is or who the, the park guest is, I think that's a really magical time. Um, I know it doesn't happen super often, but even just um, if there are different experiences for different classes, like you know, if you choose um, to be in a different Hogwarts house or you know you identify with a different like um, Jedi versus Sith etc um, giving those moments some space and like some change to the experience I think is really important and really magical and something I'm hoping will happen more and more in the future yeah so yeah again congratulations guys on 50 episodes I'm excited to listen to this episode and see what other um, contributions you know you got and what other input you got and just yeah it's it's such a cool show i love those happy places it really is a, a special podcast and i really appreciate you two for putting so much effort into it and so much time into it and putting it out into the world because um as a listener i'm, I'm sure i'm among a lot of other listeners we really appreciate it so thanks for doing that and uh yeah thanks for thanks for responding to me on twitter and everything you guys are really nice people and it was great to work with you and i'm hoping to do another episode with you soon excellent excellent Yay. clip yes thank you thank you andrew uh there's something that stood out to me in that voicemail and it was when andrew said that these worlds that are being built at theme parks are worlds you want to go to or maybe even worlds you want to live in like you don't want to just visit you want this to be your life but you can never really be a part of them because they are fictional and we're crafting fictional worlds right um, Alice, you and I have been a part, uh, however indirect, of crafting themed resorts um, and crafting that kind of fictional, kind of fictional and non-fictional place of like the reality of these themed themed areas, um, you know, in, in our times as cast members. Right. Um, and we did go there every day. Right. We like lived within it. Um, but when you're working there, even when you're behind the scenes, it's you aren't living in the fiction. You're not living in, even if the fiction is like vacation, right? Like that's the fiction. You're not living within that. You're not living within the excitement or the joy. You're living within the mundanity of a nine to five, hopefully, but usually longer and on either end of that time scale. Um, you're, you're working within the limitations of your role and duties. Like, even the people who make it come to life aren't really living in the fantastical worlds that are being created. Right. It's a job. 
<laughs> it's a job. It's a fun job, uh, but it's a it job. It can be, yeah. And and so when I think about it, like when I think about the um, the annual pass holder experience as well, where it's like, oh, I, I'm at Disneyland weekly. Like I'm there all the time. I live at Disneyland, right? <laughs> um, you know, can we actually be part of these worlds? Like, can we can we become regular and recognized and can we quote unquote live within them and, and be a part of them? I mean, even at the high price that a an annual pass used to ask, not really. We can't even like purchase our way into them. Um and and so that kind of led me to another question. And Alice, maybe you can help me out with this. It's like, can we be a part of these worlds? Is there a way to visit over and over again and to live in that in that space in that fiction like what does a repeat visitor get out of repeat visits and is there a way to encourage and reward and welcome repeat visitors in new and interesting ways that makes them feel like they are like like sources of the community like they're part of living there that the the fiction flows through them as well as around them is that a thing that we should even try for um interesting question right that is an interesting question because i wonder where that like where do you even start with something like that like okay repeat visitors who um who want to go to the disney parks over and over again and have that have something about their presence that 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 it of that them as like a pass holder or a repeat you know visitor um like that some some kind of I don't know reward or some kind of like secret or some kind of like something that they that they get access to my first gut my first gut instinct this is I don't know wh- why this is the first thing that I thought of probably because I was just on like web slingers the ride <laughs> right yeah um part of me wants to think like okay a repeat viewer could or a repeat visitor could do something like Oh, every time you ride on one of those rides that gives you a score, you have access to that forever. Or there's a leaderboard or there's, you know, because there is a, like a leaderboard, but it doesn't put names up on there. Not on the Web Slinger one anyways. Um, I feel like Buzz Lightyear used to, um, but maybe it there was some anymore. kind of online leaderboard. I remember. And so there's no like name attached to it. There's just like a, you know, a, a high score up there. And if you know the number that you got, you can be like, oh, that's me. I'm up there yeah um something like that like adding a adding a a place where your name can exist even temporarily on some kind of screen or some kind of like um some kind of monument in the park um people were able to make themselves permanent parts of disneyland when they were building california adventure and people were able to buy bricks that went in, in the plaza yeah, the Esplanade bricks, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, so names and messages and, and cute little symbols and stuff all over those bricks that make up that, that center part. That was a local thing. They they Well, not entire, not just local, but like a lot of people that did that are all like like Anaheim residents or people that like grew up in the area, right? Yeah. Um, and so that is something that's like, hey, look at this. You're a part of history now. Like this is something that you got to put your name on. That's like my first instinct is to say that putting your name on something is the way to reward or to involve repeat visitors. Um, But I don't ever want to encourage something like that to be able to lock out 
visitor, like like single time visitors, people that yeah. save up for years and years and get to visit once. I don't ever want them to ever have an experience where they feel like they don't um, get to play, you know, or they don't yeah. get to they don't oh, like, oh, here's an experience that, oh, I could never have known. It's kind of like when we rolled up to Disney World for the first time. And sure, maybe this was our lack of research, but like we had never been to Disney World before and never even come close to it before. And we didn't know until we were physically at the park that we needed like magic bands. And that was a uh. thing that we had to discover and ask questions about and like learn how to use um, wow. as like part of the experience. And we yeah. just had never known. Or like a woman I saw trying to get on Web Slingers um, when I was just at California Adventure who um, didn't own a smartphone and therefore did not know that Web Slingers ha had like a virtual queue. And she was visiting from out of the country and she was standing there like, why can't I get on? They're like, oh, well, it's a virtual queue online. And she was like, I just came here from out of the country. Try like, I didn't know. And I don't have a smartphone with like signal or like, you know, access in America. I'm using like a little flip phone to call home kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's like, those are, those are experiences and like things that, that locked people out and that I don't like that. I don't like when people get locked out. No. And, and when we talk about parks as accessible spaces, we should also be aiming for experiences to be as accessible as possible. Yeah. And so when you say this is for the annual pass holder or the local and not for one-time visitors. Yeah. Um, what, what you do is you do lock them out and you, you create something that for any exclusive experience, you create exclusivity, which it seems obvious, but yeah. And, and so I'm looking at like, other examples where where repeat visitors or fans or uh you know people who who get involved with the environment or like with the event like get things from that and I, i'm thinking the only real analog and i hate to go back to this because we did episodes on this last year but sporting events and and season ticket holders to that where they become like that the fandom becomes part of their identity they can become fixtures at the stadium they always sit in their seats they might know the usher by their seat they might know the vendor right and that becomes like kind of a community thing where i feel like theme parks are very purposefully uh not open to that that like main street is our street there have been um examples of that going horribly wrong of people claiming ownership of the disney parks specifically right and saying like oh we're in this club we hang out here you don't hang out here that's not just bad for business that's bad that's really um, bad and and i i guess when you start to form communities without uh really really uh like specific meaningful tailored moderation um and and when there isn't like a, a sort of built-in mechanism to shape and and kind of point them in positive directions, you risk that. Um, but also, I would love to see a, a theme park, perhaps a smaller themed entertainment venue or or something like that, that is about like forming a small community and being part of the space 
and uh being part of the story and like building that i, I think about like bars that have pictures of regular patrons up and stuff like that and that camaraderie that can come with that yeah um and and you know like your name's on a plaque or something like that oh. and i'm thinking about the um yeah the bricks in the esplanade and the yeah. way that like the community pitched in and bought these things yeah they were they're a consumer product right they cost money but like now you're part of it you're like in it this is your place too yeah even if you stop coming like yeah you were part of the story um and it's i definitely think definitely a line <laughs> yeah there's a line and it, it's an important one to observe i just think about like living in the space the space being real for you being part of it is something that some themed experiences could strive for and i think that's another topic maybe for another time uh i yeah i really like this conversation i think this is a really important one to have um and the yeah the difference between shutting somebody out entirely and like or shutting an entire group out entirely or like and like oh annual pass holders can access this t-shirt <laughs> it's like <laughs> like yeah that's cool like oh i'm an annual pass holder i you know i spend all this money so i can come to disneyland as often as i want it makes the most financial sense to me and oh i can buy this t-shirt a t-shirt i can buy it's How fantastic. An, it says annual pass holder on it it's wow neat um, yeah. and that's and that's fine that's great it, yeah it, it's when it becomes you know deliberately exclusionary or classist or you know there's like a whole bunch of things that can get in the way of making you know the experience go from like fun exclusionary or fun like a fun fan club experience to like um yeah like dangerous yeah it's so. been it's been that way in the past um yep. and so it's something that needs to be looked out for and that's actually like completely unrelated to what andrew said but it sparked in my brain so yet another way that was, like these inspirations can show up yes absolutely yeah it's that's funny how we how we went on a tangent there for a while talking about <laughs> you know obviously we you know thank you andrew so much for the for the voicemail and for inspiring this conversation yeah um even if it wasn't related exactly to what you were saying <laughs> yeah because because one thing that andrew did say that that also really resonated with me is that theme parks are new right like amusement parks are maybe 120 years old right like maybe around the turn of the century 1900 right is when yeah like amusement parks really came into their own as a form of entertainment but theme parks uh it's arguable uh where the first theme park was but we see the first nationally and internationally successful one at disneyland in 1955 right, right. like a lot of people could draw that line there you can argue about it but that is where a line can be drawn sure that is um and, and so the newness of theme parks and, and the way that it feels like they're constantly iterating and improving like andrew said decade by decade trying new things growing in new and interesting ways pushing against and into technology um is really fascinating and that's what always drags me back into conversations about theme parks is like them and video games are both these like new unexplored media that have really kind of honestly limited and very very niche um communities around how they are built video games are broadening because the access to the tools to create them uh, has never been higher right the access to create theme parks is always going to be so niche because of those reasons we talked about with like land and money and 
construction costs and stuff like that. <laughs> right. um, and so theme parks are always going to be this really small, like knowable, granular sort of art form that for me is the the draw is that there's like these gems of themed design and then there's like lots of little failures along the way and then also change is happening but it's kind of slow and also like when it's gone it disappears that's what makes it like an interesting medium uh and the newness of it and the the limitations on it are are part of what makes the fandom and the analysis of it uh so compelling to me i agree <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know what else to add. You, I, you, you nailed it. I, I just want to say one more thing about um, what Andrew said. And it was this idea of like, like guest identity being more like player identity and like choosing a set of abilities or a class that you belong to within the world. Um, and that affecting the stories that are told to you and that you can tell in a world that you are exploring in a, in a themed environment, right? That does seem like it's the future. That's something that, like, when I imagine future theme parks, I'm always like, how can a guest choose something? And how can that choice resonate throughout their experience? Be it through an entire park or just a land or even just a ride. Um, and we're really seeing that in experiments like Galaxy's Edge. Um, and a little bit in Avengers Campus from what we've seen so far, right? Yeah. This, like, this ability to like buy in and play along and play a role. Um, but but these, these experiments always feel kind of way limited to me in what we're seeing these days. They're limited in, in a way because you you're limited in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and then hope, you know, hopefully some of those limitations will go away after you're limited by technology, budget, physics. Um, accessibility um, uh, and like you want to find like a common denominator for your audience right like you can't can't create like if the Avengers and the Marvel films Marvel Cinematic Universe weren't so dang popular um, for you know literally millions if not billions of people around the world you don't get in a you know the Avengers campus right so like it's about finding the thing that connects people that connects a lot of people a lot a lot of people and giving them an experience that is um that is you know makes sense money wise and like like physical sense <laughs> like yeah. and maybe someday that physical sense will go you know will change entirely the technology has changed so much just even in the last 10 years it changes every decade on what we are and are not capable of, of doing at a, at a theme park. Yeah. And, and I think when you say like common denominator, that's often um, kind of a pejorative, like, like, like it's bad or something. People usually say lowest common denominator. But, when, yeah. But I yeah. mean it literally a common denominator. The like thing something that, that everybody can be expected to know and share and enjoy. Exactly. And it, it is, it is, reasonable to buy in reasonable to understand reasonable to participate in and that's that's different from lowest common denominator common denominator here is such a positive yes it's i like totally mean it that way i never absolutely a good choice to search for one yes <laughs> yes I, I never i never mean to mean that in a derogatory way at all i mean literally the common thing that unites people 
and certain kinds of stories just really really grab people and yeah. and resonate with people and there's a reason why why disney has um ha- had such success and are leaning so heavily on star wars and marvel these things just make sense to people yeah it, it just matches with their expectations for what they'll see what they know what they'll experience it's yeah it's not hard to understand why intellectual property is such a driving force in theme parks yeah it is a, it is about things that people share and know and understand yeah and there there's a conversation to be had there definitely is about about theme parks relying too heavily on intellectual properties um and outside properties and and by pulling you know what some people think is too much of that into the theme park but it's a it's it's a different conversation yeah, it's, it seems like yet another fertile episode option. Like, quite quite a good one, actually. Um, one last thing before we uh, say goodbye to Andrew's voicemail. It is this. Domes are the real future of domes theme parks. Domes are the future. <laughs> it's domes. Uh, and I'm sure that that prediction will out in the next decade. Yep, uh, just you as- watch. We predicted it. As you know, th- this year, uh, this decade is the interactivity decade. Uh, you know, it's it's experimental, it's bold, it's brash. Sure, next decade, twenty thirty, is when is when you will start to see domes, and by twenty forty, it will all be domes. It will become um, necessary not only um, for the experience, but also because of the climate. <laughs> domes <laughs> are the answer. Domes are the the real answer, and I will not rest until all themed experiences, and indeed all experiences for all people, are under the domes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Everybody, go listen to Amusement Sparks. It's a it's a wonderful podcast. We had such a good time. Thank you so much, Andrew. Okay, Alice, buddy, it is down to you, and, and it, it is, is down, down to me. <laughs> good. Very good. We, we have arrived here at the end of our 50th episode extravaganza. Mm-hmm. We have talked way too much about so many things. Uh-huh. But central to the purpose of the 50th episode extravaganza is for you and I to look back at the last 49 episodes. Not to mention all of the uh, other content that we have put together as podcasters in the theme park realm. And to ask ourselves, after 50 episodes, 50-ish, 49.7, do we still agree with our approach and our thesis statement to theme parks, rides, and attractions? Which is, theme parks are literature. The answer is a resounding yes. We have spent all of this time talking about how theme parks are literature, and you want to ask me, are theme parks no longer literature? Now, hear me out. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes. I I still am all in on this thesis statement. I think we have been able to have some really incredible conversations with really incredible people. Um, The thesis statement is that theme parks, rides, and attractions, not just are literature, but deserve to be thought about as literature. Yeah. how when I when I talk about this podcast to people and they say what's your podcast about and I say it's about 
how theme parks, rides, and attractions are and deserve to be spoken of as literature. That you get a hundred thousand million movie podcasts and entire YouTube channels dedicated to analyzing books and analyzing television shows and 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 why isn't anyone <laughs> why isn't anyone talking about why theme parks are the same? We get other theme park podcasts and other theme park um, you know YouTube shows and and conversations really important ones to be had about impact and about history and about um, you know secrets and design and, and all of that but what we wanted to ask and what we wanted to bring to the theme park discourse was are theme parks as are are you able to analyze them as much as you can literature not not just that they deserve it but can you is there enough here to talk about and the answer is yes 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 i agree uh you know i i don't have the website open in front of me but i do believe that wikipedia defines literature as a work usually of fiction uh usually written that is of merit that has a, a unique or important theme perspective storytelling idea and when i hear a definition like that not only are way more things than just like novels literature but like theme parks are a uniquely situated form of literature that contains unique perspectives, themes, storytelling elements. My one, like, hear me out, maybe theme parks aren't literature concern, <laughs> which is <laughs> funny here at the, the 50th episode. You are right. Um, it's, not, it's not that I don't agree that theme parks are literature. It's that sometimes I worry that we as analysts of theme parks as literature... Uh, we who are trying to like kind of pose as scholars but in a really kind of loosey-goosey sort of way right um, about theme parks uh, sometimes might slip into uh, territory where we are trying to fit the round peg that are theme parks into the square hole that is like capital L novel literature you know what I mean yeah and that sometimes we have definitely made the mistake of, like, applying language to parks and rides and attractions that definitely, like, belongs to books or belongs to movies. Sure. Uh, I don't know if it's a mistake. Well, maybe maybe we've just, like, because we know what it is, we've, like, used a concept, right? We've, like, borrowed it. And even if it wasn't perfect and didn't quite fit, we, like, found ways to make it happen. But okay. what I'm what I'm noticing as we move like farther into this endeavor, uh, especially in later episodes, is that we've like felt really restricted by that and have started developing. I mean, we did it in this episode, Alice. We've started developing like ways of categorizing and That's ways true. of talking about uh, and not new vocabulary, but like altering vocabulary and, and shifting our vocabulary and trying to make new ways of talking about literature that I think are like, for all that we joke about the Alice White 
themed <laughs> scent categorization system or the Buddy Duquesne uh, guest categorization system or whatever. Um, you know, for all of the jokes that we make about that, like, you know, a taxonomy of theme park guests is an important thing to establish. It's an important thing to talk about how people experience this art form. Uh, and one of the great honors of doing this podcast with you is that you are like willing to jump to that and willing to say like, actually, yeah, this needs a new system or like we need a new way to talk about this. And we're not stuck in your high school English classes list of literary terms <laughs> that like we are we are pushing against that and using the terms we already know and the theories and ideas we already know but we're we're asking ourselves what's missing and somehow miraculously once in a while kind of cogently filling in those gaps um and if only a small community of listeners hears those i know that it's important because i know that these ideas will make it out into the world and that these ideas will be built on and iterated upon i can only hope that the name duquesne stays on the taxonomy at some point <laughs> yeah. um but like i feel like our theme parks literature absolute and th what does it mean to treat them like literature it means that we need to see them as more than amusements and that we need language to describe how they are. Um, and I'm, I'm just so proud that somehow in the 50 episodes, we've, we've started to do that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That makes me feel really good. I, and yeah, I, I, I think that's like something that I'm very proud of and something that um, I think shows a lot of our growth, our growth, which has been exponential since our first episode which was a delight to do and make um but uh it doesn't doesn't sound our best um <laughs> we definitely were trying at one point to have a segment that's like word of the week you know yeah. um and it just wasn't it wasn't right you're you're right it and, and then maybe it was right for us at the time and it was right for us to start the conversation about how we even talk how do how do we talk how do we have this conversation how do we um how do we try to express all of these ideas that you and i have been developing for the last like 15 years of our lives <laughs> um as we you know as we grew up in theme parks and then worked at them and and everything we you know we've been developing these ideas for so long that and we were both English majors, um, or English and English adjacent, right? <laughs> that we in media studies that, that we, we use words that we were familiar with, and now we are growing further. And and that that this is a conversation. This part of the conversation, uh, the growth that we have had, was um, my answer to the question that you posed on Twitter. The questions that you posed to everyone that got us such amazing responses from all of our amazing um, listeners uh, that, that sent in these voicemails and these emails and you posed the questions. And then I thought about it and that's how I wanted to answer. I wanted to answer the questions uh, like this um, from my perspective and from how we do this podcast and, and knowing us and how much we've changed over the years and, um, and, 
how much the podcast has changed and grown um, is that the conversation about theme parks in the future is going to be just that. It's a conversation. The conversation about theme parks and the discussions that we have about about what is and is not like literature and what devices are we using to tell stories and what methods are being used to, to bring people in on this incredible experience needs to be a conversation. This can no longer be um, a like, oh, one guy wrote a book about about Disneyland and that's what the entire conversation about theme parks is, you know, like it's no longer just up to the experts, quote unquote experts in the field, right? This is a conversation that we have now with us, with other podcasters, with people from all sorts of backgrounds in every community you could possibly imagine, has a conversation about what does the theme park experience feel like to us? What does it look like to us? What's meaningful about it? What works? What doesn't work? It's, it is a conversation to be had, a back and forth, a dialogue to be had between people that are underrepresented, between people who um, have really good ideas, but don't have the platform. Um, and, and something that I've noticed kind of in recent years about theme park disc is that it's um, increasingly being focused on um, like influencers. It's like a social media thing. There was a whole part of California Adventure set up uh, when I was there the other day um, over back behind um, the Monsters, Inc. ride, kind of in the corner over there, yeah. um, where there is almost nothing. Um, there is now a series of like pop-up, um things to take pictures in front of or with um it's a very like like instagrammable little area where like the one that i chose to take a picture with um where your camera person stands behind a television and takes a picture of you sitting on a couch on what looks like the wandavision set very cool through a tv and the tv is in the shot um, so it looks like you're on TV. It's very cute. Uh, it'll be all over my Instagram. And, but like, there's a whole bunch over there. There's, uh, you know, a thing you can stand in front of a replica of the uh, Captain America shield with the Falcon wings behind you. Between that there and what they did with the old ESPN zone on downtown Disney, where they changed it into like an Instagram factory. It's like, a, <laughs> it's basically like a whole series of rooms with like cool uh, cool backgrounds and cool floor patterns where you can like wear your coolest outfit and take pictures in there and be like I went to Disney and or I had this cool photographable Disney experience um, and that has become like an increasingly like important part of how Disney and how like and, and honestly theme parks in general kind of are dealing with their fan base and with their audience i watched a um like uh you know had like a like except like lots of followers on instagram but didn't really have like a like a massive huge platform i watched them go from like minor whatever theme park influencer to like officially sponsored by knott's berry farm like we get to in we invite you in to like play around in knott's berry farm gets invited to press events just by being an instagram account dedicated to knott's berry farm <laughs> and now they are like a legitimate like media organization kind of you know they get invited next to abc7 to come take pictures of their new boysenberry festival you know sure, sure and so like the future of theme park discourse is about everybody is able to participate 
Anybody with an Instagram account can come take a picture and act as advertisements for Disney. Anybody with a, you know, a TikTok account who can make a, a cute video showcasing all of the yummy food they ate at Avengers Campus is suddenly like they're an advertisement, but they're also a conversation. They in the comments is hosting conversations about like what is good, what tastes good, what drink is yummy, what, uh, how long was the wait time for the ride? You know, you get to to be a part of the conversation just by being a fan. And that is the future of of the theme park discourse. I think it it becomes a conversation where every single person is invited to participate um, and and make it public. That's interesting. I I feel like in many ways it's never been easier to be in the parks from outside the parks. Um, And that, that new level of access and, like you say, conversation... About the parks and knowing about the parks before you go to the parks and uh, expectations that you form by looking at these uh, these photos, uh, hearing about these accounts, watching these videos, stuff like that. Um, they're definitely part of the experience. I, I know that when I find myself in times of trouble <laughs> missing theme parks, I have not been to a theme park in uh, nearly two years now. Um, which is wild for a, a theme park podcaster to say during the podcast. Um, but, you know, circumstances beyond our control prevented at least one of those years from happening. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing is, when I find myself in times of trouble missing theme parks, I, I can check out on-ride videos. I can listen to the music. I can see photos of the new food. It's interesting for me because, like, the Instagram and the TikTok or whatever don't really appeal to me. Uh, no, you're, appeal- a, you're a YouTube guy. <laughs> <laughs> I do think YouTube is where a lot of uh, interesting content is being made and good conversations are being had. But, like, conversation is, like, when you said the future is conversation, I definitely agree with you. And I'm glad to be a part of any kind of conversation about theme parks. Because... I think that the more this access, you know, increases, the more that it's not just being within the gates of the theme park that takes you there, but it's everything about what is produced within there, be it officially licensed and sanctioned or not, right? Um, That's part of how we start to tell each other stories about these places and how we start to build conversations and how we start to build audience expectations and how we start to generate buy-in and so that people can start to build their data pad so that when they get to galaxy's edge they can really role play right and stuff like that it's stuff that doesn't happen in a pre-online environment it's stuff that doesn't happen before social media and it has affected how we talk about it even though i am not on tiktok um (laughs) and i think that's interesting now Alice, uh, do you know of any uh, podcasters who had a modest following and then uh, suddenly exploded and then Knott's Berry Farm sponsored them to be ambassadors or whatever? Um, no, but uh, hopefully we could be those people. Hey, call us Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, hey, I Knott's love Berry boysenberries. Farm. Boysenberries are the best berries. <laughs> They're the only berries as far as I'm concerned. For Strawberries, per- what are those? For Purim this year, I made boysenberry hamantashen. And wow. let me tell you, they were killer that sounds amazing <laughs> i went and bought the knots brand boysenberry jam from my local grocery store here in phoenix arizona specifically to make boysenberry hamantashen for perum hey so. it's not just the best choice 
it's the podcaster's choice. <laughs> Sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Alice, I agree with you. The future is conversation. It's being in conversation. And one of my hopes for the future of Those Happy Places, for the next 50 episodes of Those Happy Places, for the next 50,000 episodes of Those Happy Places, yeah, is to have more conversations and to find new voices. Because when I think about our shortcomings as analysts, scholars, podcasters, whatever you want to call us, um, it is that our perspective is limited. It's limited geographically. Uh, it is limited in that we are both white. True. Um, it is limited in that we have limited personal experiences with many uh, themed entertainment destinations, options, uh, attractions. It's true. It, we are tragically California-based. <laughs> um, yeah. California Central. Yeah. And, and like, there, there are dozens of parks internationally that we can barely even dream of going to. It's time to start branching out, hearing voices of people that are more experienced in areas that we are not. Uh, and to start using what we learn and what we hear and those conversations that we have to create new meaningful ways of talking about theme parks, of elevating them as a form of literature. And I think that's where we're heading. Uh, and I've seen positive growth in that direction for the podcast over the last 50 episodes. Yeah. And I'd love to see more. Yeah. Something I think about a lot is like, we don't divide our show into seasons at all. <laughs> um, but we kind of had had a few different seasons of the show. It seems like every 10 episodes or so, we kind of do we kind of change our perspective a little bit or we change our like um, our approach um, we did a lot of episodes about specific individual rides and attractions. We did a series of episodes where we kind of talked about um, like types of rides and spanned across like lots of different theme parks that all feature the same kind of ride. Um, and then we had a, a whole bunch of episodes where we interviewed people who are very involved in making theme parks and talked to them about, you know, what the actual like making process is like and design work and the work that people do we've had like like almost seasons in that we have like topics that seem to interest us for a while and the comp the topic that i'd like for us to focus maybe for the next 10 episodes or or you know not exclusively like i said we're not seasons but something that i'd like to see a direction i'd like to see us go in the next um series of episodes is i want to talk about not just that we I don't want to t just analyze a theme park or a ride, but I want to take a step back and talk about how we analyze, like what, what goes into analyzing, not, not just theme parks, but anything. Um, and I want to kind of take a step back and almost meta analyze what makes those happy places uh, work and what makes it tick. And I want us to spend some time, um, yeah, thinking about that and asking other perspectives and really like moving us towards, um, you know, bigger and more um, like more important conversations, not just about, oh, I like this part of a ride or this part of a ride feels good because this, but like 
philosophically, why do we enjoy the theme parks as much as we do and how they can, how we can and how they can be better? Yeah, I I would love to start almost a soft reboot here, right? Where we like start by laying out um, like parameters or techniques or uh, ways of seeing that we're employing um, lenses through which we're viewing parks and attractions. Uh, And then we start to build that kit uh, so that when it comes time to talk about these monumentally philosophical important questions about parks like the land on which they sit right and and the the ways that they interact with their communities or just like the ways that they tell stories and what stories get told and what it means that big companies can make theme parks right and stuff like that like the stuff that we're almost poking at in this in this little extravaganza here uh that we have so much more equipment and and more tools that we can kind of throw at these problems to try to understand them because you're right we have grown a lot and changed a lot since we started our approach has also grown and changed but it did so in wild and unexpected ways that we weren't necessarily like consciously curating we were just like making stuff up and saying them on a podcast but like episode 51 of those happy places it would be so cool if we were just like episode 51 step one how to analyze a theme park or like how should we analyze a theme park uh and just kind of like starting from there maybe that's not what it ends up being but you know that would be a really cool place to go with the show yeah Um, even if it's not necessarily episode 51 um because we already just in this episode alone came up with ideas for like five more episodes but i'd really really like for us to start doing that in the future and to to really like think about what makes this show what it is and that is something that i'm really looking forward to doing with you yeah it's it's honestly i couldn't imagine a better creative and academic partner than you in all of this it Aww. 50 episodes has felt like so few i i cherish every single one of them yes um, i definitely do not look back on any of these with regrets that's not except, what we're except saying. for the sound quality and like episodes one quality. two and maybe three four and five but you, and, know, you know eventually maybe. we bought better microphones Right. I guess if I have only one regret, I only have one regret, and it is that our microphones were not A plus at the beginning. Uh, we have learned, we have grown, we're better, we can still improve. Um, <laughs> and, but we are, um, yeah, it's just, it's been such an honor and such a pleasure doing this with you and making all of this content with you. I, I do treasure every episode, and that's not what I'm saying. Like, when we say we've grown and changed, I don't ever want to imply that, like, past us was, you know, was, that we were doing a bad job. So I think we were doing a fine job, and we started a lot of conversations that were really useful. It's just now uh, these conversations that are useful, um, they just are only going to get better. From now, they are only going to improve. I agree. And uh, Alice, just to give everybody who's listening maybe a preview of the immediate future, um, you and I are currently working on a summer series 
that is of similar tone and depth, um, but not necessarily of similar subject, uh, to Birds of Paradise, which was our four-part summer miniseries last year in the year of 2020. Right. Um, Now, that was an interesting project, and the idea that we might do these annually is really appealing to me, too. Um, These deep dives into an attraction or set of attractions uh, that incorporate kind of your more traditional history, but also history surrounding them, history surrounding movements around them, and then also the history of how they opened the reception, what they meant when they came out, uh, what they mean today, and how they've changed, that sort of thing. It's like these really intense crunchy episodes of those happy places that get their own label and usually their own soundtrack uh i'm so stoked to create the next version of that um, yeah absolutely but, but no telling what it what it is yet you'll you'll know when you know <laughs> <laughs> yes we'll hopefully be announcing that within the next couple of weeks and getting those episodes uh started really soon because uh yeah we've got a lot to say and um and a lot of opinions and a lot of feelings and i'm i'm really excited to hash those out with you this is gonna be fun it is and and so expect those immediately after this and then whatever we decide for episode 51 uh know that this show sometimes goes through periods of lots of episodes at once and then these long hiatuses that just pop up kind of because alice you and i have gone through some stuff yeah (laughs) (laughs) definitely um Um, but despite all of that and despite many hiatuses that we take somehow unexpectedly um just know that forever uh our listeners and this project are so 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 important to us and we love and cherish every minute every voicemail every email every tweet and it's it's really like a soothing balm on a difficult year that this has been um and uh, and a, a very like creatively fulfilling project that i'm really honored to do and um and here's to uh here's to 50,000 more <laughs> 50,000 more <laughs> alice i i'm just happy today to return to those happy places with you and can't look forward couldn't possibly look forward to returning over and over again anymore like it is a joy a balm it is exactly what the doctor ordered once in a while (laughs) and to, to have this to know that we can return to it and to know that there are people out there who want to hear what we have to say is again just the ultimate honor it's it really so is. cool and thank you so much to all of our contributors uh it has been a really cool episode and a really cool series of uh, conversations i hope you all enjoyed listening well alice it sounds like our 50th episode extravaganza has come to an end but the conversation <laughs> and all conversations like this continue online on the internet a series of tubes that resembles in many ways a theme park <laughs> exactly <laughs> and we are um constantly online without stopping always on twitter uh you can find the show at happy places pod uh and you can find us individually i'm on twitter and 
Instagram, and TikTok, all under the same handle. You can find me at Alice White THP for those happy places. You cannot find me on Instagram or TikTok because I do not understand those applications. But <laughs> I am on Twitter at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U. E-S-N-E. And if you like what we do and you want to support the show, um, you can find us on Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to go to express your appreciation for the show and shows that we do uh, in a monetary sort of way. We've got lots of backer levels with all sorts of bonus content, bonus episodes of Those Happy Places, bonus episodes of our other shows, including Rogue Fun, a podcast story, uh, wacky little minisodes. It's really a fun little place on the internet. Any amount of contribution is greatly appreciated. Yes, we have uh, so many different reward tiers for any kind of budget. Of course, any sort of support is um, is so much <laughs> we we appreciate any kind of support whether it's it's monetarily or otherwise a tweet a retweet even just like a high on the street we just love that <laughs> um and uh but the patreon comes with various rewards tiers like stickers and buttons and postcards and stuff and one of those rewards tiers is getting your name read on every episode of every show that we do that's true alice would you do me the honor of reading the list of names of patrons that have so generously decided to support us in making those happy podcasts. Yes, 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 I shall. It is my honor um, to thank the following people. Uh, April L., Aslam C., Charles G., Ian E., Nick H., Joe W., and Kate P. are all at various tiers that uh, include this as a bonus reward. So thank you all so so much and to everybody else also thank you for uh for listening and supporting we we just appreciate you so much uh once again that website is patreon.com slash those happy places now alice i am gonna add just so much music to this 50th episode extravaganza i love it and where would you have gotten that music all of the music that i use for this show is written composed performed i assume by Kevin McLeod. Kevin McLeod has an incredible library of music that he offers for free under Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license, which simply requires that we thank him for his music and direct you to the show notes where all of the music credits can be found. All of his music can be found on incompetech.com. Now, I think I'm hearing something else, though. Ooh, ramping up behind us right now, getting louder and louder every second, is our theme music. Is that Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers featuring Phil Alvin? It is. It is. This track and many more are available on their website, CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. Thank you so much to the Feet Warmers for this amazing song. We love it so, so much. And we love using it for every episode. I get so happy every time I hear it come in. It's true. Back when we hadn't even created a single episode of the podcast yet, I remember sending an email out to the feet warmers and being like, hey, Golden Gate is exactly the vibe we're looking for for the intro music to our new podcast that doesn't exist yet. And they responded so graciously and said, as long as you attribute it to us, 
and say thank you as often as possible you can use this you can use this music indefinitely and uh for that i will always be thankful so yes to the feet warmers to phil alvin thank you for recording such an amazing track it is so cool to have it be kind of our thing it's our thing it's so our thing that uh, one time a friend of the pod Lizzie Lee went to a Dapper Day celebration and there was some swing dancing and she heard this song oh, playing no. there and she immediately thought of us and recorded it that's amazing it she, wow yes she was like oh it's the Those Happy Places song <laughs> um, and uh, it was just it was so, so delightful to hear and so thank you thank you thank you for to the Feet Warmers to Phil Alvin to Kevin Cloud to all of our contributors here tonight um, and to you, Buddy DeCane, for uh, making the show wonderful. Alice, I I thank my lucky stars. What lucky stars I have. Uh, that in you I have found such a great collaborator and such a great friend. It is so cool that we make the show. And that we make other shows too. And despite yeah. despite everything, despite it all, we continue to try and make things together. And it's it's just so meaningful and important to me. I know we say this a lot, but thank you for making this show with me. And here's to 50,000 more. <laughs> thank you for being my best friend and the smartest guy I know uh, and for helping make this show and all our shows uh, wonderful. Uh, it's. I, I thank you. Ah, we gotta I'm stop. We gotta just keep cry. going forever. Thank you all for listening for fifty whole episodes plus. We'll see you for the next fifty, hopefully soon. <laughs> thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places. <laughs>